Welcome to another edition of Focus on the Kingdom. This is Anthony Buzzard inviting you again to search the Scriptures with us as we continue to investigate Jesus' famous and favorite topic, the Gospel about the Kingdom of God. There's a very good reason why many churchgoers have a vague idea about what the Bible says about the future of our world. The truth is that Jesus' teaching about a future kingdom of God coming on the earth, a new divine world government, such teaching is extremely unpopular in many religious academic circles. Academic theologians train pastors who train churches. And if pastors are not taught clearly about the future kingdom of God on the earth, for which we're praying, Thy kingdom come, then inevitably that information does not pass from the pastor to the pew in the local church. Scholars, it seems, would much prefer a Jesus who taught an ethic of timeless love and fellowship with God. They are much less enthusiastic about a God who promises to send His Son, the Messiah, back to this earth when He's going to introduce by cataclysm a new world order on earth. And yet Jesus promised His followers that they would inherit just such a new society on the earth, namely the kingdom of God. I'm sure you know the well-known beatitude in Matthew 5, verse 5. There Jesus said to his disciples, Blessed are the meek, they're going to inherit the earth. Now, if you check the word inherit through the Gospel of Matthew, a rather remarkable result will be found. Blessed are the meek, Jesus said, they're going to inherit the earth. In Matthew 19, he spoke of Christian disciples inheriting the life of the age to come, somewhat mistranslated in our versions as everlasting life, or eternal life, really the life of the age to come, as that phrase zoe aeonios in the Greek means in its first century context. And by the way, I'm pronouncing the Greek there as a modern Greek would pronounce it, zoe aeonios, the life of the coming age. So Jesus promised his disciples, on the one hand, the earth, in Matthew 5, 5, the life of the coming age, in Matthew 19, and in Matthew 25, in verse 34, he promised them that they would inherit the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, incidentally, prepared from the foundation of the world. That's to say, the kingdom of God that God had in mind even before the creation. We learn there from Jesus' famous phrase about the kingdom of God prepared from the foundation of the world, that God had the kingdom in his heart, in his mind, in his plan, in his great design, right from the start, even before he created the heavens and the earth. Now notice carefully, Jesus promised his disciples the earth in Matthew 5.5. 5 the life of the age to come in Matthew 19. And in Matthew 25, he promised them an inheritance of the kingdom of God. Now, we form an equation from these three parallel statements. To inherit the life of the age to come in Matthew 19 is the same as inheriting the kingdom of God in Matthew 25, and that's the same as inheriting the earth in Matthew 5, verse 5. You see how the Bible interprets itself? We compare parallel passages, and by putting them together, we come up with a composite picture of what Jesus promised his followers for the future. 
Now, I want to say in passing that Jesus never promised anyone heaven, if by that you mean a realm beyond the skies, far removed from this planet. No, Jesus promised his followers that they would inherit the earth. In the world of Jesus' thinking, the kingdom of God is always the kingdom of God coming on the earth. God is not finished with this planet. He's not just going to remove everybody off to heaven, to distant lands unrelated to this earth. God has not finished with this earth. His plan is to establish the kingdom of God on the earth, to demonstrate that there can indeed be peace on the earth when he chooses his faithful to be rulers and administrators with Christ of that future kingdom. A Christian reward then is presently stored up with God in heaven. Now that's certainly where heaven comes into the picture. The kingdom of God is stored up with God in heaven, prepared from the foundation of the world. A Christian is said to have treasure in heaven now. That's to say he has a reward promised him by God who is in heaven. But that reward is coming from God to the earth when Jesus comes back. I might point out that when you store up money in a bank for your retirement, you don't go to the bank to retire. The money comes out of the bank for you to enjoy it elsewhere. The situation is just the same with salvation. You have treasure in heaven now as you store up a reward for yourself with God, and that reward then will come to you at the second coming when Jesus returns to this earth to establish his kingdom. Colossians 3.24 says it beautifully. You are going to receive the reward of the inheritance, Paul said there. You're serving the Lord Messiah, the Lord Jesus Messiah or Christ. In 1 Peter 1, verses 1 through 4, and especially verse 4, you learn that salvation is presently reserved for you in heaven, waiting to be manifested in the future at the revelation of Jesus Christ at his second coming. That's the simple scheme by which God offers you now an opportunity to work for the kingdom of God through faith in the grace of God to receive the message of the kingdom of God and to dedicate your life then to a life of preparation in view of that stupendous coming event, the arrival of Jesus to inaugurate his kingdom at the second coming. You'll find if you look through the accounts of Jesus' ministry that he always preached about the kingdom of God. In Luke chapter 9 and verse 11, you'll find that Jesus welcomed the people and began speaking of the kingdom of God. Paul did exactly the same in Acts 28, verse 30. He welcomed the people and testified to them for long periods of time about the kingdom of God, using, incidentally, the Hebrew Bible to do this. And I think you'll find in verse 23 of Acts 28 that Paul did this from dawn till dusk in an effort to persuade people to believe in Jesus' gospel about the kingdom of God. Now, if you read scholarly analyses of the kingdom of God in the teaching of Jesus, it's easy to see that Jesus' emphasis on the kingdom to come at his return to the earth is often bypassed or ignored or downplayed. Some scholars find this information about a future so-called apocalyptic kingdom, that's to say a kingdom that's going to come by a divine intervention in the future, they find that apocalyptic future kingdom very uncongenial not to their liking at all. Some scholars argue that the disciples misunderstood what Jesus taught and read back this idea of the future kingdom of God into the words of Jesus, thus creating the impression that Jesus believed in that future kingdom when he really didn't. Can you imagine what an awful task we would have 
if we had to try to decide always what actually Jesus said of the words that are attributed to him in the Bible and what he actually didn't say. That would be an impossible task. We must take the Scriptures at face value as a divine revelation conveying to us vital information about God's plan through Jesus Christ, the Messiah of Israel. Now, there's another scholarly technique by which the teaching of Jesus is sometimes avoided and evaded. And this idea proposes that Jesus did use language which sounds as if he believed in a great future intervention in the affairs of man, but, the theory says, he used that language only out of deference to popular ignorance. So Jesus, on that theory, really didn't quite mean what he said, although he used popular language just to make himself agreeable to the people who were listening to him. Now that would turn Jesus into a kind of uh, puzzle maker, full of enigmas, full of mysterious sayings that nobody really could take seriously because you couldn't be sure whether Jesus really meant what he said. That's an impossible theory. Now, theology, we suggest, has some serious unfinished business to do. It must come to terms courageously and candidly with the fact that the Christian gospel, as Jesus preached it, announces indeed a coming catastrophic intervention by God to put an end to injustice and human mismanagement of our planet. Jesus spoke always about the kingdom of God, as did Paul. It's fascinating to observe how minutely Paul followed his Lord as he welcomed the people and began to speak about the kingdom of God. That's exactly what Jesus had done in Luke chapter 9, verse 11. But do Christians today follow this example? When did you last hear an evangelist on radio or television invite people to, and I quote, repent and believe the gospel about the kingdom? Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. I have read scores of tracts claiming to offer the gospel or salvation which contain not a single reference to the kingdom of God. When did you last share the precious information about the kingdom and what we need to do to enter it when it comes? Paul obviously expected church members to play their part in the propagation of the gospel message about the kingdom. He noted that when he was in prison, and I quote again, most of the brethren have far more courage to speak the word of God. And the word of God, I hasten to add, is the technical term for the gospel about the kingdom of God in the New Testament. The term word of God is not just a vague synonym for the Bible. In general, it means specifically and in a focused way the gospel of salvation, the gospel of the kingdom of God and the things concerning Jesus as we find in Acts 8 verse 12. Now, it's our Christian duty to be evangelists for Jesus and his kingdom. Timothy was instructed to proclaim the word of the kingdom. You'll find that in 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2. Paul had just finished speaking of the kingdom in verse 1, and then he exhorts Timothy to proclaim that word, that message, that gospel, at every opportunity. End of quotation, 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2. The treasure of the kingdom message given to us, according to Matthew 13, verses 11, 44, and 46, is not to be hoarded up for ourselves. It's to be passed on to others who have never perhaps even heard a clear demonstration of that message. Now, a fierce judgment awaits those who do nothing with the talent they've been given. They don't just miss out on rewards in the kingdom, Jesus said, 
they are actually excluded from the kingdom of God itself. You read that in Matthew 25, verses 28 to 30. I would like to suggest to you that the New Testament, indeed perhaps the whole Bible, is held together by a single concept which provides unity to all its different parts. The church will become unified again when it adopts this New Testament pattern of teaching. The unifying heart of the New Testament is the gospel message of salvation as it came from Jesus himself. This gospel Jesus called the gospel about the kingdom of God. You'll find that in Matthew chapter 4 verse 23, Matthew 9:35, and Matthew 24:14, and other verses in Mark and Luke and Acts, particularly Acts 8:12, Acts 20 verse 25, and Acts 28 verses 23 and 31. Now that gospel of the kingdom is known as the word or message, the message about the kingdom, Matthew 13 verse 19. Sometimes it's abbreviated to simply the message or the word. Sometimes the message of God or even the gospel of God. Mark 1:14 and 15. The same saving message is called the message of the truth or simply the truth. In John's gospel it's called the witness or my, that's to say Jesus' word or words or teaching. Sometimes in Paul's letters it's called the mystery, reminding us of Jesus' own phrase, the mystery of the kingdom of God, Matthew 13:11. I've written a book on the kingdom of God entitled The Coming Kingdom of the Messiah, A Solution to the Riddle of the New Testament. I would invite you to request a copy of this book for your own personal Bible study at home. Meanwhile, join us again as we continue our investigation of Jesus' famous topic, the gospel about the kingdom of God.